Before we jump into today's episode, a brief word from our sponsor. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you're burnt out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be a solution for you. Not sure where to start? Locumstory.com is the place where you can get real unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like, what is locum tenant? To more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how locum tenants can work for you. Go to locumstory.com or doctorpodcastnetwork slash locumstory and get the answers. All right, let's um, let's migrate along here. Um, let me give you an example. These are real examples, real world. Patient is HIV positive. You're a surgeon. Uh, you prefer not to do the case. You fear you'll get stuck with a needle. Um, what are your obligations? Next, imagine you, the surgeon, are pregnant, and you believe any medication to address HIV, if you are stuck with a needle, will be a problem. Uh, so, the HIV one is easy. Um, there's a Supreme Court case from 1998 called Bragdon versus Abbott, mm-hmm. and the Supreme Court there said that HIV seropositivity is a disability under the ADA. This was long, long before the ADA was amended to broaden what is a disability. So uh, that's an easy one. The question would be whether they're a healthcare provider, whether the patient is a direct threat. To the healthcare provider, the answer is no. So I, I recently saw a case settle um, where a doctor uh, decided to not treat someone with HIV. The Department of Justice went after them. Uh, keep in mind, the Department of Justice has as one of its priorities going after health care providers because healthcare providers are in the business of helping people be better, and uh, it's easy mark if they are discriminating against people with disabilities. So the HIV is easy. Uh, there's the medical science is well known in HIV. It's now a chronic condition. Uh, if you take universal precautions, you're not in a situation where what the ADA would call a direct threat. So if you refuse to treat an HIV individual, uh, you are going to lose that ADA lawsuit. No questions asked. Uh, we're talking Bracken versus Abbott. I'm looking at the site now, and that's a 1998 case. So that's Let me ask you this. 22 what, years. What if the surgeon is pregnant and she gets stuck? And the and here's the reason I bring it up, because one of the treatments would be post-exposure prophylaxis with medication, um, meaning that if one's pregnant, then now you've got kind of a Hobbesian choice as to what what do you do? I mean, I understand no, your not point. not really. Um, you'd have direct threat under the ADA has a very defined meaning. Uh, it means the, the case that um, both Title II and Title III regulations define direct threat the same way. But if you want to really know what a direct threat is, 
the uh, two cases that you want to read are School Board of Nassau County, Florida uh, versus Arlene and uh, Chevron versus Ekazabal. Both of those are Supreme Court cases. Uh, Ekazabal is E-C-H-A-Z-A-B-A-L. Both of those are United States Supreme Court cases, and they tell you what a direct threat is. And it's not just some hypothetical idea that, oh, I may be at risk. It's a really, really high standard. And that is one of the issues that you see all the time in the physician recovery program or professional recovery program, HPERPs, or whatever you want to call them, PHP, is that they are constantly looking at whether the person is quote unquote safe to practice when the legal standard is whether they are a direct threat. And they're not at all the same thing. I think in one of those Supreme Court cases, the the deciding factor was whether there was an objective measurement of risk, not subjective measurement of risk. That is whether the physician perceived that they may end up getting stuck with a needle and ultimately get, H- uh, get contract HIV, but whether the literature um, supports the idea that the risk is high, and every case is different. There are some cases where the likelihood of getting stuck with a needle is significantly higher than other cases. So uh, some, I think in many ways this would be a fact-specific situation depending upon the type of patient you're dealing with, the type of case that you would be doing, and the underlying risk of the individual physician or surgeon taking care of this patient. But but I do hear what you're saying. You're saying that on its face, given no other facts, that if if you turn away an HIV patient or any other chronic disease patient who is perceived to have a disability, the ADA will kick in, and it's something that will need um, to be addressed. The Supreme Court terminology, I'm just... I'm just looking at my book, Understanding the ADA, the fourth edition, which yep. came out in 2013. But uh, I update that book in real time on my blog, basically. My blog basically updating the book in real time. And if you look at the language from the Supreme Court, it says that direct threat has to be based on reasonable medical judgment, relying on the most current medical knowledge and or the best available objective evidence, and it also has to be based on an individualized assessment of the individual's present ability um, to, uh, in this case, it was a job, but not necessarily if you're talking about Title II or Title III. So you're looking at the individual's ability to meet the essential eligibility requirements of the program with respect to Title II or to be able to meet the uh, what the business does. So. That's, uh, that's all from the Supreme Court, the Chevron versus Ekazabal decision, and the school board in Nassau County, Florida versus Arlene decision. It's a high standard. Yeah, so it's achievable, but with uh, it would have to be unusual facts to make it happen. With no other facts available, turning someone away with a chronic illness in and of itself, if they have a disability, could put you in the crosshairs of being a defendant with the ADA. Correct, yes. All right, let's migrate to the world of obesity. Um, I guess the first question is obesity in and of itself considered a disability? No. 
And is obesity with other things potentially considered a disability? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so obesity, obesity is um, one of these strange things in ADA jurisprudence where it requires an underlying physical or mental impairment. Uh, obesity by itself is not considered a disability by the case law, uh, with maybe one exception. But that's, uh, but the obesity requires a physical or mental underlying impairment. And if you can connect the two, uh, then you have something. But if it's just obesity by itself, and you don't have any allegations that the obesity is related to a physical or mental impairment, then you do not have a disability under the ADA. So a patient comes to your office, they weigh 500 pounds. Your dental exam table um, will accommodate, at least on the label, 450 pounds. What are your obligations uh, in that circumstance? Obviously, you didn't know that patient was coming into your office, but let's assume it's obesity and nothing else. Um, what? How do you handle that? Obviously, the chair won't hold the patient. Um, that's uh, a tricky one because the uh, the question, you have a patient at 500 pounds and you only have 450 pounds that the chair will hold. Right. The, the question I would have is there some kind of way that you can do what you have to do without putting the patient in a situation where they may be at risk. And if there are ways, then I would explore that. And if there are, and if there are not, and you just say, well, I don't have the facility to be able to examine you properly because you weigh too much, well, then the, you may get a letter from that person. You might get a letter saying, well, my obesity, if you get any kind of information suggesting the obesity, obesity is linked to a physical or mental impairment, then that person has a disability and you'll have to figure out a way to accommodate that unless you can show fundamental alteration or an undue burden. Um, most, um, most, uh, the cost of most accommodation ranges from 500 to $1,400 with most not costing anything. So again, cost is generally not going to be an acceptable defense. The obesity one would be tricky with uh, someone just showing up who weighs that much. It would be tricky. Yeah, I mean, to purchase a new dental exam table, you'd be looking at many thousands of dollars. And even then, you wouldn't be able to handle that patient until you ordered it, got it set, in, set up, got everyone trained. So you wouldn't really be fixing this problem at hand. The simpler solution, assuming everybody is comfortable with this, would just be to find a practice that has a dental exam chair that can accommodate such a patient. I mean, you could well imagine that would be um, a uh, advantage to a practice. And if they, if patients, well, such patients I, knew about it, they could go there. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, some of this is people with disabilities have money to spend. And uh, if you want to set up your business so that they don't spend the money at your business, that's possibly a market that you're losing out on. So let's move to employees. Um, we talked about if a patient is deaf, what if your employee is deaf? What obligations do you have to provide equipment to help him or her 
do her job. Um, certainly there's a cost associated with that, but there also may be some tax benefits for uh, participating. Help us understand that. Recognize you're not a, you're not uh, a tax attorney. Yeah. It's different rules. That's all under Title One, And the question is, uh, can the person with a disability do the essential functions of the job with without reasonable accommodations? So the question is, what are the essential functions of the job? And that would be anything that is fundamental to carrying out the job purpose. And then you're looking at what... Um, what can you do to accommodate that individual? So it gets into, um, there's all kinds of possibilities that might go into that. The number one thing you wanna do in all these issues, whenever you're dealing with people with disabilities, is engage in the interactive process. And I have a blog entry called The Do's and Don'ts of the Interactive Process. That's a great thing to read. And that should be something, whenever you're dealing with a disability, no matter what the context, you should be dealing with the interactive process and working with the person with a disability to try and figure it out. I mean, on the one hand, you're trying to help. On the other hand, you can't discriminate or pry unnecessarily. So how do you, how do you zig and zag so that uh, uh, again, you get it right? The, the zig and zag depends upon what title of the ADA you're dealing with. It differs. So with respect to employment, when the person puts you on notice that they may need accommodation and you don't need magic words, the employer does have the right to say, okay, give me some documentation so I can understand the nature of the disability and then we can begin to strategize how to accommodate it. You have that right under Title I. Uh, Title Two and Three work differently, but uh, so, under Title I, the employment provisions, you can ask for a reasonable amount of information, documentation to try and figure out just what is the disability and how you might accommodate it and engage in the interactive process. So many physicians are not just business owners. Many are employees in healthcare systems, and mm -hmm. um, they're often told to do something or else face uh, termination. And they may be uh -huh. forced into, I'll give an example, that they just have concerns that the doctor, for example, is disruptive, or there may be an underlying problem, and they tell the doctor, you need to go away for a fitness for duty evaluation. You're right. familiar with that. Help us understand what that entails and what the obligations are and what some of the minefields are. Um, well, again, this is where it starts getting really complicated because if you're an employee and your employer is telling you to do this, the employer has very defined rules. The ADA under Title One by statute has a very defined system for dealing with um, pre-employment uh, medical exams and disability-related inquiries. Uh, medical exams and disability-related inquiries after a conditional job offer, and medical exams and disability-related inquiries once you're an employee. And the employer has to deal with that. Those are things that are obligated on the employer. Uh, once it goes over to the medical licensing board, uh, what they will often do is just delegate the responsibility completely to the physician recovery program, which is not uh, the ADA is a, it's not a duty that can be delegated. 
So that's a bit of a problem. The um, the uh, then where you see the big issues are the physician recovery program or the professional recovery program often starts looking at it from the situation of quote unquote practicing safely potential impairments. Uh, none of those things are ADA paradigm things. And so they are going about their business uh, with a standard that is far below the ADA. And that, that's where you see the, the issues. It gets really complicated because essentially what you are trying to do, what they're doing is they're taking a job situation, but they're in a world that doesn't, Title II and Title III are not employment worlds. They deal with accessing governmental entities, accessing places of public accommodations. They're not employment world places. So you have to have a, one of the things I do, a large part of my practice, is I work with attorneys on their ADA and ADA-related cases as an ADA compliance expert or expert witness or consultant or consulting expert or consultant on the litigation, helping them figure this out. It can get really, it's just really, really complicated um, because you are. You are talking about quote-unquote fitness for duty, but it is not being done by employers. It's being done by other entities uh, who may or may not be acting on behalf of the, may be acting at the instigation of the employer. The employer has their own obligations. That's the easier, that's the easier setup is if the employer makes a referral in a way that is not consistent with their ADA obligations. That's the easy one. Uh, it's much harder when it gets into the, it's much, the rules that have to be used are much harder to get your head around when it comes to the medical licensing board and the physician or the professional recovery programs. I cannot tell you the number of times we've seen a complaint being filed to the board of medicine. The board of medicine says we need to make sure that you're fit to practice fit for duty. They get, they say, Hey, look, sign on the dotted right. line, go to the PRP program, let them do right. that analysis. I'm sure you've got right. nothing to hide. Then the doctor goes, well, I really do have nothing to hide. So I'm going to go there. I'll get cleared. I know right. it's expensive, but I can get back to the office pretty quickly. And what do they learn? They learn they're uh, now they in a giant they rabbit. Never done it. One of the, one of the things that that's really, really important to your listeners, is if you are getting referred into the PRP system, the very first thing you should do is get a lawyer, a licensing lawyer. And then the second thing you need to do is tell that licensing lawyer that there are ADA implications here, bring in an ADA knowledgeable attorney who knows this field to help you out. Repeat uh, that, Bill, you got to repeat that. This is This is one of the most important points of this podcast. Yeah. If you're on the receiving end of a board complaint and the suggestion is go to the PRP program for fitness for duty and all will be well, what what do they need to know if they know nothing they, else? They need to find else? they need to find a licensing attorney, uh, first of all. Um, and then they need to talk to that licensing attorney and tell the licensing attorney, listen, there are ADA implications here. You need to bring in knowledgeable ADA counsel to help you understand just what the ADA implications are so that you can put me in the best situation so I 
you know, spending tens of thousands of dollars and having my career ruined. Let's get on top of this right away. Um, that, that's what you need to do. If you are a physician with a disability, I would be putting money aside into some kind of escrow account so that you have that money to uh, pay for your life counsel and your ADA knowledgeable attorney. If you're lucky, you might have your insurance pay for it. I've seen that happen in a couple of situations where I've consulted on, but that doesn't happen a lot. Um, unfortunately, the economic the law practice are such that you're just going to have to budget this and, um, and deal with it. But the, what you need to do, the minute you get put into a PRP thing, you, before you even go in there, find licensing counsel and work with that licensing counsel to make sure that they understand that there are all kinds of ADA issues here, not just direct threats. But one of the things about the ADA that people may not realize, and the PRPs of the world certainly do not realize, is that the ADA defines a disability as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits a major life activity, has a record of such an impairment, or is regarded as having such an impairment. And there is a lot of mistakes going on because people, the PRPs of the world, uh, the medical licensing boards of the world, and some extent the employers, uh, not so much there, but particularly the medical licensing boards and the PRPs of the world often do not realize that a disability includes someone with a record of impairment or someone who is regarded as having an impairment. So I think what you're suggesting is that the ADA here may be your friend, your ally. It may level the playing field if you are shuttled or be asked to be shuttled into the PRP program because the mere fact that there's a question of fitness of duty, a question of fitness for duty raises the presumption that um, there may be an underlying disability at issue, in which case um, leveling the playing field can only be helpful to you as, as a doctor before you start spending, as you say, tens of thousands of dollars in a PRP type of program, correct? Correct. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think of this, uh, nobody likes paying lawyers, I get that, um, but I think of this as an investment. For most doctors, their license is their piece of paper granted by the government to print cash. And most of us have one skill, we're good at it, but being able to practice medicine is something that if you lose that ability, it's hard to start over. So you protect it, you baby it, you do everything you can. And if it's in the crosshairs, you have to do everything humanly possible to, to be out of work for one month, two months, six months. I mean, if you're out of work for... You're, you're um, absolutely right, Jeff. The thing I would add is that, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of people in the, in the medical business, it's who they are, it's their identity. So if you lose your identity, you may be looking at a cascade issues of MH problems, and a lot of it is unnecessary, or a lot of it can be prevented, or you hope to prevent it anyway, because you can't make guarantees in the law business. If you get uh, licensing counsel and ADA knowledgeable counsel involved from the get-go, uh, the reason why you need both is because licensing is very much an individual state-by-state -state thing. 
and you need to you need to know the individual personalities on the ground, but then you also need to be dealing with the ADA, such as record of, regarded as direct threats. Those are the common problems you see. And then if the two are worked together, the licensing council can use the ADA council to strategize the best way to get the licensing folks to back off or maybe get the PRPs of the world to dis- discharge the individual. Um, you know, you're or be reasonable see, or just be yeah. reasonable. I mean, it's the way I view it is that you're, you want to bring as many chess pieces to the table as you can. Mm-hmm. You don't want to just have one pawn, the pawn being you alone against the world, because that's a tough fight. But if you've got right. talented licensed defense counsel or administrative law counsel, as well as ADA counsel, they, it's like a uh, Reese's peanut butter cup. You got some chocolate, you got some peanut butter, and the two of them together can actually make an effective uh, case to get the other side to be reasonable, just to get a fair shake. That way it works out. If it works out properly, you won't be out of practice for weeks to months on end. You may never be out of practice. You may never have to shut your door at all. I mean, to me, that's a great outcome and investment. That, that is great. I think part of part of the problem is that I think doctors are just too willing to believe that people have their best interests at heart. And then I also wonder what doctors may be learning in medical school about lawyers. Um, <laughs> lawyers are not always the enemy. Lawyers can be of help. So um, you know, I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, I think the key is just finding the right talent. Um, I've got mixed feelings about PRP programs. I think, you know, at some at one point they were designed to help solve a problem. My concern is that many of them have become cottage industries where um, or factories where the board shuttles doctors and other professionals to them and um, may make money by delivering quote unquote results back to the board. And so, if, if the PRP program said that everyone that got sent to it is perfectly fine and it requires no, no input or activity whatsoever, then the question is, will they keep using that same vendor? So I, in, in one sense, I'm, it concerns me that there's, they're almost designed to fail um, or not serve the stated mission, and they often become a tool of abuse. Has that been your experience, uh, Bill? Um, the the, the problem, the fundamental problem is a philosophical one. The, the ADA is designed to get people to the same starting line as a person without a disability, and then you see what the person can do. The PRPs of the world are designed to fix or cure the disability, and if it can't be, to monitor you closely. And that's a philosophical inconsistency with the ADA. The ADA basically says, okay, you have a disability, so what? You figure out a way to modest, to mitigate it, to help correct it by yourself or whatever prosthetic devices you need or personal devices you need or whatever reasonable modifications you may need from the applicable covered entity, and then you can show us what you can do. The, the other, the view of the, you read the uh, FSMB, uh, policy on physician impairment that views very clearly disabilities are things to be cured or fixed. And if you can't cure or fix them, there's a problem. 
And that's not how the ADA works. I mean, it sounds like the ADA focuses on function. Um, can you perform the particular job given reasonable accommodations? My concern with medical boards and the licensing, I, I've seen this on renewal applications, certainly in the past. I think maybe they, some of them are getting better, but they ask, they have asked in the past, um, have you seen a psychiatrist for a particular mental illness? And the thing that's odd is that if you're a doctor advising a patient, you would say, seek help. If you're ill, seek help, get care. If you're on medication and it's treating your condition, wonderful. But there's a fear amongst doctors that by disclosing that, it's the kiss of death. You've now um, delivered information that the board probably has no right to have, and you're being judged for having done whatever it takes to become entirely functional. What say you? Yeah, and that's a justified fear. Uh, that fear is perfectly justified. The uh, There has been litigation. I have um, blog entries talking about this, for example, with the state of Louisiana Bar for Lawyers. Department of Justice came down hard on them. The uh, questions need to be, these renewal questions need to be focused on current behavior and exploring whether the person has a condition that prevents them from meeting the essential eligibility requirements of being a physician with or without reasonable modification. And when I, you know, for example, you sent me something uh, that said, have you ever? And no, that's not going to work. Um, you can't go have you ever. You're looking at current ability to do the particular practice of that individual. You're not looking at have you ever. Uh, the other thing that you see quite a bit of is the, the technical assistance memorandum put out by the DOJ uh, for Title II, which would be licensing board, and Title III, which would be the physician health program. When you are assessing, the assessment should be narrowly focused on what the issue is. It shouldn't be a deep dive and finding things that may or may not be there. So again, these are all reasons why if you don't have ADA knowledgeable counsel involved from the get-go, you're going down the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. And uh, it's much easier to get on top of it early than it is to... Um, have spent tens of thousands of dollars and have had your uh, mental health uh, jeopardized. And then also you don't have the ability to pay for the lawyers. I wish, I wish it wasn't that way, but law is very much a business. Well, that is the cycle of doom where you go it alone, hoping for the best, get deep, right. deep, deep. Then you're out of your practice for a prolonged mm -hmm. period of time no mm -hmm. money coming in, deplete savings, and then you that and then you really need to hire decent counsel at that point. It's the right. it's the cycle of doom, prevented, of course, by getting the right people up front. And hopefully you never miss a day in your practice, continue to print money uh, in right. your job, and that's the better of the two outcomes. Exactly. And you get to do what you want to do. You spend a lot of your life investing in who you are as a physician. You look at, uh, you know, four years of college, four years of med school. Then you look at a uh, year of internship, several years of residency, then a fellowship. That's an awful lot of your life you've invested. And to just 
throw that away because there's an assumption out there that disabilities need to be cured or fixed, and that's not the ADA, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me on either a psychological or on a print money level. Yeah, I, I share that uh, assessment with you. Bill, listen, this has been a whirlwind tour. I'm sure we could go through hours with this stuff. Why don't we sure. take a break and we'll come back at some point down the road and revisit this. Okay. I cannot thank you enough. Before we leave, tell our listeners how they can find you, how they can find uh, your blog site too. Sure. Um, I'm at understandingtheada.com. And one of the ways, one of the things I do want to point out is that I don't spearhead litigation. I don't have the personality for it. I just don't enjoy it. And so what I wind up doing on rare occasions, I will co-counsel. But what I wind up doing more often than not is training um, and also uh, working with attorneys on their ADA matters as a ADA compliance expert witness or consulting expert or consultant on the litigation. So it's really helpful to have counsel lined up before you get me, uh, get to me, because I will wind up telling you, listen, I don't enjoy spearheading litigation. You want to, especially for those in the licensing rabbit hole, you're going to need licensing counsel anyway. So um, uh, on the internet accessibility things, I can find people who are litigators. I can work with them. Um, the uh, So that's just something I want to throw out there. But understanding the ADA.com is where you want to go. Uh, you'll find everything you need, need to know about me on that site. Bill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank Join you us for again. having me. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Before we end, don't forget to visit locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory to get real unbiased answers to all your locum tenants questions. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation, best practices, 
and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.